as a culture, we're a pretty independent bunch. We just celebrated Independence Day, not Dependence Day. The heroes in our movies that we love often go it alone. They really don't need any help in saving the city, the state, or the country, maybe even the world. They'd rather do it by themselves. Dirty Harry didn't need a partner. In fact, if you were Dirty Harry's partner, it was a bad thing because they always got killed. They didn't need a partner. Will Cain went it alone into that street in High Noon, if you'll recall. And Jason Bourne, well, for Jason, help just gets in the way, doesn't it? I enjoy these movie heroes, as I suspect you do too. And I appreciate the concept of independence and going alone. But the problem is that in most cases, that idea is a total fantasy. Very few people who really accomplish anything really meaningful do it all by themselves. Our Lord did, to be sure. On the cross, he was very alone. But that's a very unique situation. We're not created to go it alone. Adam was a perfect man, but he needed Eve. Moses was a strong leader, but he needed Aaron. Patton was an incredible commander, but the Battle of the Bulge would not have been won without the Third Army and others providing help. The biblical teaching is... That in the body of Christ, there should be a special unity within this body that is marked by, watch this, interdependence, not independence. Interdependence. Yes, there is a sense in which all of us live our lives before an audience of one. Just you and God, me and God, me before God. There's something very personal about the priesthood of the believer. We make personal decisions that have ramifications upon us as an individual. I will stand and you will stand as individuals before the judgment seat of Christ. We won't stand there as a group. No group evaluation there. Like like in college, you have these group projects. I never particularly cared for group projects. Because I wanted to be independent, not interdependent. I don't want want anybody else having any effect on my grade. I I wanted to either stand or fail on my own. But you know what? In the Christian community, there is the priesthood of the believer where we do stand or fail on our own. But there's something bigger than that. We live this life out in community. And in community, it's the way God designed it, in community we are interdependent upon one another. As those who have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life, yes, we live individually before God. And we'll be held accountable for what we did with the time that we were here, the resources that we have, individually. That is true. I would never deny that. But we sometimes miss when we stress the individualistic aspect of this life that it's by God's design that we were meant to live our lives out as Christians in the context of community. Some embrace community, others really don't. But either way, if you're interested in what the Word of God actually says about the subject, then you've got to accept the concept of community. He's the one that designed it that way. And this is the subject of our study today in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 31. In chapter 12, verse 12, a verse we studied last week, Paul introduced the study 
or the concept of the metaphor of the body when he writes these words, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Just as the human body has many different parts, yet is still one unified organism, so also the body of Christ is made up of many different parts, many different and unique individuals. Yet on a grand scale, the body of Christ is one unified organism. We're all in union with Christ. If you have personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, then you are in union with Christ. We are all part of this body of Christ. We're individuals, to be sure, and and we're unique individuals. There's so much uniqueness, there's so much diversity, even in this room right now. And in the larger body of Christ, oh my, incredible diversity in the larger body of Christ. But while we are individuals and we're unique individuals, we're also part of something that's bigger, much bigger, and bigger than this local church. You see, there are two ways the word church, ecclesia, is used in the New Testament. One I'm going to call the little C church. That's the local church. It's an individual gathering of people who have believed in the Lord Jesus, at least theoretically, We meet and we worship. There's all different kinds of local churches. There are local churches that have a variety of different kinds of preaching styles and worship styles. They meet different at different times and different locations. Great diversity within local within the concept of local churches. But there's a different way that the the term ecclesia or church is used in the New Testament, and that's the way Paul is using it in 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 First Corinthians and in Ephesians. It's what I'm going to call the capital C church, the church universal. And the church universal, by definition, if you're a member of the universal church, you have believed in Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life. You have done what Paul told that Philippian jailer to do so long ago when the Philippian jailer asked, what do I need to do to be saved? Paul didn't tell that Philippian jailer, listen, you need to apologize to me for beating me over the last couple days. And my friend Silas here, and for throwing me in this prison. You need to apologize for that. You need to repent from it. He didn't tell him that. He may have been tempted, but he didn't do it because it wouldn't have been the truth. He didn't tell him, as soon as you become saved, I want you to make sure you get with that fellowship of believers in Philippi and make sure you worship on a regular basis. Now, that would have been a good thing for that Philippian jailer to do, but that's not what Paul told him. He didn't say, once you get there, you need to make sure you give a certain percentage of your income. You need to be a good steward of what God has given you. And that would have been a good idea, but that's not what Paul told him in terms of how, did he be, how could he be saved. He didn't say you need to turn your life around, give up drinking, give up drugs, whatever it is people tell each other nowadays. He didn't tell him any of that. He said, very simple thing. In fact, it's so simple that people almost take offense at it. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Another way to understand those Greek terms, pistuson epiton koriones, place your trust in Jesus. Trust him to get you right with our Heavenly Father, not something that you could do on your own. If you've done that, if you have ever recognized the fact that you had a need and that Jesus Christ is the only way that that need is ever going to be fulfilled, if you've done that, then you're part of the larger body of Christ. Now, I would like to believe that everyone who attends a local church, even our local church, has personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life. But every now and then I'm fooled because while we ask you that when you apply for membership, you can say whatever you want to say. Only God, know, only you and God know for sure. But when it comes to the body of Christ, the only way you're going to get in is to be a believer 
in the Lord Jesus. So the church is made up of many unique people, individuals, but it's one organism. We're all in union with Christ, and we're part of something that's bigger than ourselves. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, we learn that the body of Christ is another term for the church with a capital C. They're synonymous terms. Paul writes this, And he put all things in subjection under his feet. This is Christ. And he gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. It's interesting to note that in the Ephesian context and in the Corinthian context, the discussion is a regard to the body of Christ And it's done in the context of unity. The disunity in Ephesus was a little different than the disunity in Corinth. In Ephesus, it might be a little more sophisticated. Although every bit is ugly, their disunity was over the inclusion of Gentiles into the church. The Jews didn't want to include the Gentiles in. They thought they were superior by virtue of their racial association with Abraham. They didn't particularly want the Gentiles in. And then the Gentiles looked at the Jews in Ephesus and said, How dare you not want us in? So there was a lot of racial conflict in Ephesus. Now, it's not the same kind of racial conflict we experience today in our world, or at least in our country. But it was racial conflict. In Corinth, it's a whole different kind of conflict. And there's many different conflicts. But it boils down to the same thing, selfishness and pride, which led to disunity in the church, which we've studied before, is the root cause of all the Corinthian problem. We are all part of a body, so there should be unity. This is the message of Ephesians. It's the message of 1 Corinthians. But if we think of the metaphor of the body, the human body, there are times when our physiology and our human body goes terribly wrong. And the human body starts to form antibodies, which ordinarily are good things. But in, in this particular case, the human body will form antibodies that will go and attack other parts of our body lupus, Adson's disease, celiac disease, sometimes MS is thought to be an autoimmune condition, Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis are all conditions in which science believes, medical science believes, that there may be what's called an autoimmune component to those diseases. In other words, something terribly wrong has gone on inside of our bodies And instead of trying to fight off foreign invaders, you know, foreign viruses and bacteria and so forth, instead of using the immune system to do that, what happens in these cases, and there's dozens and dozens and dozens of these diseases that have been identified as autoimmune diseases. What happens in these cases is the body starts fighting against itself. And those of you, and I know there are many in here that have some of these autoimmune diseases, when you have a disease like this, you know how horrible you feel. Typically, there's no energy in the body because all the energy is spent fighting itself. Most of the time, people with with a disease, for example, like lupus, spend most of the day in bed because they just don't have the energy to get up and walk across the room. I have a great friend whose daughter just suffered a terrible bout of lupus not long after her baby was born. She couldn't even change the baby's diaper. She couldn't go to the restroom by herself because her body was fighting against itself and therefore had no energy left to fight what was outside. That's why people with autoimmune diseases oftentimes contract other infectious diseases as well. Isn't that a great metaphor for what sometimes happens in the church, though? 
in the body of Christ, I'm afraid today far too much we have some serious autoimmune diseases going on. And instead of looking outward and seeing the battle is out there, that hearts and minds are to be one out there, we turn our focus in upon ourselves and we fight among ourselves and we wonder why we've got no energy left for evangelism. We've got no energy left to comfort people, to encourage them, because we're spending too much time fighting amongst ourselves. i never forget a chapel service that Chuck Swindoll did when I was in seminary. He was the president of the seminary at that time, and every now and then he would take the opportunity to insert himself into the, past, into the rotation for chapel messages. And there were some things going on. I don't remember particularly exactly what it was at this time, but I remember there was a lot of fussing and fighting going on between the students there at the seminary. And I'm talking about this one, the, the campus in Dallas, not the Houston. I'm sure it would never happen in the Houston campus. <laughs> don't let it ever happen in the Houston campus. But there was something really bad going on. And when I saw Chuck's name on the board there that he was going to be the speaker that day, everybody kind of wondered, I wonder what he's got to say today. Because he wasn't the scheduled speaker. And whenever Chuck speaks, the, the, or spoke, he's not the president anymore, but the chapel was always full. And it was a jam-packed house in there that day. And he gave a passionate message on unity within the body of Christ, much like the one that we're studying here. Very passionate message. Then at the height of that message, he just couldn't help himself anymore. And he said, gentlemen, the enemy is out there. The enemy is not sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you. We are on the same team. The enemy is out there. And until we get that, we won't be an effective seminary. If we spend all of our time fussing and fighting among each other, now, one thing that surprises people about seminary, when you, when you sit in an actual seminary class, sometimes you'll have discussions that will go on that look like it's fussing and fighting, but it's not really. And sometimes ideas just have to be hashed out, and then you see people that look like they're at each other's throat, and then you see them later on that day at lunch at the McDonald's enjoying a hamburger together. Well, that's not what Chuck was talking about. He was talking about some ugliness that was going on, something that's destructive, something akin to an autoimmune disease taking place inside of our bodies. And that's the exact same thing that was going on in Corinth. These people were turning upon themselves. You remember some of the problems that they had? They were arguing over who baptized whom. What a silly thing to argue about. They were filing lawsuits against one another when the things could have easily been settled just by sitting down and talking. They had a very lax attitude towards sexual immorality. Some people cared, some people didn't care. It was a terrible thing that was going on, and they just turned their back on it. They couldn't even get along during the communion service. That was part of the subject of our, of our last chapter. And they, they had disunity even in the communion service. And now in chapters 12 through 14, we see that, the, that this disunity they had within the church was manifesting itself in the way that they were participating with their spiritual gifts. They had developed a system of hierarchy. And if you had this particular spiritual gift, you were a superior Christian to someone who had this particular spiritual gift. And Paul's going to say, that needs to be turned on its ear. There's no, there is no vertical hierarchy. It should be turned in a horizontal way. There's no superiority that's, that's inherent to any spiritual gift, particularly not the one that they had attached superiority to. It's very hard to live a normal life as an individual, as a human being, if you've got an autoimmune disease. And again, for those of you that have it, and I know we pray for many of you on a weekly basis, MS and lupus particularly, but some others as well, 
If you have that, my greatest sympathy goes out to you because you could amen this like nobody else could. You know how difficult it is to live a normal life with an autoimmune disease. You just have no energy to get the things done that you need to do. And I've got to tell you, in the same way within the body of Christ, if the members of the body turn against each other, effectively attempting to destroy each other, it's really difficult for the church with a capital C or the church with a small C, any local church, to have an effective ministry to this lost and dying world. Oh, there'll be a ministry. There'll be committees. There'll be outreaches. But the key is, is it an effective ministry? You know, people want to be told how to get healthy by other healthy people or people that have at least learned the lesson. If all people see from us is fussing and fighting among ourselves as the body of Christ, what kind of testimony do we have to this world? Not much. And there's way too much fussing and fighting going on in Christianity today. Now, I recognize that there are certain doctoral differences that need to be hashed out, just like in that seminary class that I was talking about. You know, some things do need to be argued over. But they can be argued over in a manner that's not destructive to the other person. You know, I, I know people that have, have almost gotten into fistfights over whether there should be immersion in, in Christian baptism or sprinkling in Christian baptism. I know one man who used to be the president of Dallas Seminary, I won't tell you which one he was, that wouldn't tell people that he was actually Presbyterian instead of, instead of Baptist because when he would go to Baptist churches, if they asked him did he believe in sprinkling or immersion, he'd have to say sprinkling and they were going to throw him out. I mean, that, that, isn't that silly? One of the greatest theologians of our time, John Walvoord, he's with the Lord, I'll tell you who it was. That's who it was. <laughs> Mrs. Walvoord's with the Lord too, so nobody can give me a hard time about that. Dr. Walvoord wouldn't tell people he's Presbyterian because, because they wouldn't invite him or they'd give him a hard time. And that's something over the mode of baptism. Now, sure, let's discuss it, but let's don't let that be a hindrance to our outreach to a lost into a dying world. In verse 13, which is arguably one of the most theological verses in this letter, maybe even in the whole new, of the New Testament, Paul relates the procedure by which we become part of this body of Christ. Verse 13 reads this way, For by means of one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. We studied this last week. We see that the spirit is the agent of this baptism. And at the moment of faith, because everybody in Corinth had already been baptized, at the moment of faith, the Holy Spirit takes us as an individual that in a sense is out there all by ourselves. We're an individual, and then he takes us and places us into union, an intimate, personal union with the very person of Jesus Christ. I don't know how often we think about that. Maybe you thought about it the first time that you ever heard it, how awesome that is to actually be a part of Jesus himself. We're in a very intimate union with him. You know, when you said, I do, to the marriage vows, when you got married, you, you formed a very intimate union between husband and wife there. Well, the union between you and Jesus Christ is even more intimate than that. For while Cindy and I reside in the same home, I reside in the body of Christ. Christ resides in my body. He indwells me. It's an even more intimate union than the union of marriage. 
So the Holy Spirit is the agent, and he baptizes us into one body. We also saw last week that this word baptize is eris passive. It means it happened in the past. And also the passive part, that it was done to us. We don't do it. The Holy Spirit did it for us. We are a passive participant in this exercise. And it's something that was already done. So Paul could say to every Corinthian believer there that you are part of this body because you were already baptized. As we read this today, we can read this today. Anybody that reads it as a believer in the Lord Jesus has already been baptized. And there's only one time that could happen then. And that's if this baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at the moment of salvation. I know you've read many theologians that have taught you that. I hope that you have, and in many different, if you're widely read, but now you may know why they teach you that. It all has to do with an aorist tense, an aorist passive. It's, it's even seen here in English, though. For by means of one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Then Paul goes on to say, whether you're Jew or Greek, so there's still a hint of this Ephesian problem, although this is written from Ephesus, so Paul probably had it on his mind. Whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. There's an intimacy there. We all sit down at the same table. You know, I've read from sociologists that they feel like one of the problems in American culture today is the whole thing of fast food and, and people living lives that are so busy that we seldom sit down and eat a meal with each other. Sometimes we spend more time eating meals with our friends at lunch because we do that on a regular basis than we do sitting down eating meals with our whole family at dinner. There's something very personal, isn't there, about sitting down and sharing a meal with your family. And I think in times past that was an advantage that perhaps families in the past might have had that we don't share now. We ought to try to do that a bit more. But what Paul's referring to here is that we're all part of a family. We're all drinking of the same spirit. It's extremely important. Three points that we closed with last time. The Spirit's baptizing ministry is unique to the church age. It first occurred on the day of Pentecost, and its purpose was to take the believer and place them into union with Christ, and as a result, with all other believers. You see, if we're both in union with Christ, not only is there an intimacy that I have with Jesus Christ, but guess who else there's an intimacy I should have with? You. You see, we're all part of this family. You've heard that phrase, blood is thicker than water, you know, when people get into discussions and arguments. That's true in the body of Christ, too. If you've trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, you are my brother. You are my sister, and I am your brother. It would be wise for us not to forget that. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is experienced by all believers in this dispensation. There are no out-of-the-body believers one is either a believer and in the body of Christ or an unbeliever and not in the body of Christ. It occurs at the moment of salvation and is not repeated thereafter. And this is important for a discussion that we'll have at a future lesson. But speaking in tongues was never the normal and necessary sign that one had been baptized by the Holy Spirit. I know that's a common teaching today, but hear me clearly. Speaking in tongues was never the normal and necessary sign that one had been baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. And the way that we can demonstrate that, even from this chapter, is that everyone in Corinth had been baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. But later on, even in today's lesson, we're going to see that not all had spoken in tongues. See, So this idea that in order to confirm that you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, you have to have spoken in tongues, it's just simply not biblical. 
Well, then in verses 14 through 20, Paul is going to stress the fact that there is diversity in the body of Christ. We're not all the same, and we should celebrate the difference. If we were all the same, how boring it would be. There are a variety of personalities and ages and desires and things that we enjoy, even within an individual local church and in the broad body of Christ when you include every believer in the entire world. Oh, there's great diversity. Read along with me in verses 14 through 20. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. Now remember that. The Holy Spirit is the one that gave spiritual gifts, and this is the context here. But God has placed members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. There is diversity, but there's also unity in the body of Christ. I think the point that Paul is making in these verses is pretty straightforward. It doesn't require a lot of explanation. The human body has many distinct parts, each with its own uniqueness and significance. There's a great difference between the function of the eye and the function of the nose, or the function of the nose and the function of the ear. But each individual component is part of something bigger. If all you had was a big eye, that eye could see things all day long, assuming you had a brain to, to evaluate what's being seen. But if there are no arms and no legs, the eye could say all day long that, listen, I feel like I need to eat, but there's no arm to reach out and grab the food and put it to one's mouth. So it's, I think this is a pretty straightforward illustration. I think the Bible is wonderful in the way that it doesn't complicate things that don't need to be complicated. I think all of us get that. Don't we? All of us have the, have the concept that we have to have all these parts necessary. All the necessary parts have to be working in order for a body to be considered really healthy. So Paul's using this analogy here to turn the self-centered vanity of the Corinthians upside down. The members here, as Paul is outlining them, are people with different spiritual gifts. And there were people in Corinth that felt like they were superior Christians because they had spoken in tongues and others had not. Or they could interpret tongues and others could not. Or they could prophesy and others could not. For example, if a person could speak in tongues, but, but someone else couldn't, and perhaps they had a gift of encouragement, the per- person who spoke in tongues at that point in Corinth considered themselves to be a superior believer in the Lord Jesus. And what Paul is saying here is that no way, no way at all. You've got this whole thing upside down. And Paul just takes it as he does sometimes and sets conventional wisdom on its ear. God is the one who sovereignly decides who gets what spiritual gift. And even though some might consider certain spiritual gifts to be more important than others, all Spiritual gifts are significant. Some spiritual gifts are more public than others. That's true. But all spiritual gifts are important. 
If you have a wide variety of gifts functioning in a local church, that's going to be a healthy local church. As we said last time, there are no spectators in a local church. There are only participants. So we all should be participating in something. And if we're doing that, then we're a healthy church. Paul's point here is, in these verses, there's no such thing as a superior or inferior believer. Now, I think it's fairly transparent when he talks about the eye, that these are people that were in leadership in Corinth. So the eye can't say to the ear, I don't need you, or to the foot, I don't need you. Everybody needs everybody in a local church. And like I began with this morning, this idea of interdependence goes against the grain in most of our thinking. We want to be financially independent, don't we? That means that we don't need anybody for nothing. I don't need nobody for nothing. If I got enough money, I don't need you. Well, guess what? Doesn't matter how much money you have, you still need other people. We want to, we want to be independent in every area of our life. It doesn't work that way. Again, there is this priesthood where we have an individual walk with God, but we need each other. That's the message here. We should take it to heart. So there's diversity within the body of Christ. There's diversity in the human body, there's diversity in the body of Christ, but there's also interdependence. Now look at verses 21 through 26. He says, And I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body seem to be, that which seem to be weaker are necessary. Now a couple things there, which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our, un, and our, our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness. Whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. That there should be no division in the body. And that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers... All members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. I hope you were listening. If one of us suffers, all of us suffer. If one of us is having a great day, all of us should be jazzed that somebody else is having a great day. That's what it means to be part of the body of Christ. Now let me say, that's not just for this local church. And this is where you may have to step just slightly outside of your comfort zone. I think we all do. That's for all local churches. That includes the ones that are meeting upstairs right now. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the church that's meeting down the street, if they personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant us eternal life, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when they suffer, we suffer with them. When the churches in Nigeria are bombed by this Islamic group that's doing some really bad stuff in Nigeria right now, when those churches are bombed and we read of Christians dying and Christians being maimed, we should suffer with them. We should feel for them. Have we become so detached that something so horrible could happen in another part of the world and just because it's in another part of the world we don't care anymore? What has happened to us? Whatever it is, it's not good as a Christian community. So this has application within our local church but also in a broader way as well. The weaker and superior members of the body of Christ just seem to be so. This is especially important because this goes to the heart of Paul's message here, what he's dealing with in chapters 12 through 14. Because the Corinthians did value certain parts of the body more than they valued others. 
They valued certain spiritual gifts, and they had established a pecking order, as I mentioned a moment ago. Those who spoke in tongues were considered to be superior to those who did not speak in tongues. And so what Paul is doing, as he does in his brilliant way, led by the Holy Spirit, he's setting the groundwork to demolish that situation. So he doesn't just come in and tell them how bad they're doing it. He sets up the principle first. And then he's going to say, based upon this principle, you need to change some things. Now, if there is such a thing as a greater gift, and he's going to use that term later, it's greater in the sense that it benefits everybody, not simply that one individual with the gift. In Corinth, and in some circles to get today, the outworking of certain giftedness results only in the benefit of the one who has the gift. And if I read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 correctly, spiritual gifts are supposed to be for the common good. So if you're doing something and it's for your benefit, and that, that's fine, just don't call it a spiritual gift. It's only a spiritual gift if it reaches out and has benefit for someone else. And then as we close, verses 25 through 26 and following, close this thing and sum it up really nicely. Verse 25 Again, that there should be no division in the body. The members should have one and the same care for one another. And yes, that includes Christians who go to other churches. We should love them. There shouldn't be any competition either within a church or from church to church. One member suffers, all suffer with it. One member's honor, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. The unity, diversity. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not interpret tongues, do they? There's the fact that all in Corinth didn't speak in tongues. Because all of these questions are formulated in the Greek language in such a way as to demand a negative answer. Greek has two different ways to formulate a question. One that demands a positive answer, one that demands a negative answer. This demands a negative answer. So when it says all are not apostles, are they? they the response will be, no, they're not. All are not prophets, are they? No, they're not. All are not teachers, are they? No, they're not. But then he says in verse 31, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I'll show you a still more excellent way. Again, all had been baptized by means of the Holy Spirit in Corinth, but not all had spoken in tongues. Speaking in tongues, then, again, was never the normal and necessary sign that one had been baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. Verse 31 is going to serve as a transition to Paul's dissertation on love in chapter 13. But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I'll show you a more excellent way. Some believe that Paul's call to the Christians to earnest to the Corinthians to earnestly desire the greater gifts is said in some sort of sarcastic way or maybe he's mocking them something like okay you go ahead and desire these greater gifts but I'm going to show the rest of you who will listen a better way I've already kind of alluded to or hinted that I, I don't accept that view sarcasm and mockery don't really seem to fit in this part of the letter no I believe Paul's serious here and he's urging them to value the gifts, but to value the gifts as they were represented in verse 7. Gifts are for the common good. That which is practiced for the common good is then superior to that which is not practiced for the common good. 
That's his point here. We'll study that more in the future time. But to conclude here today, there is unity and there's diversity in the human body. There is also unity and diversity within the body of Christ. But the key idea in today's passage is that there is interdependence in the body of Christ. Not independence. And I'm glad we're an independent country. Don't get me wrong of any of that. But within the body of Christ, we should camp on this idea of interdependence. Because all parts of the human body are necessary for that body to be considered healthy. And in the same way, all parts of the body of Christ need to be functioning properly in order for the church universal and any local church to be considered healthy.